Unfortunately, I'm not on the podium, so you probably can't see me at the back. Um, uh, welcome, everybody, on behalf of the Retirement Matters Committee. Uh, we'd like to introduce you to the first session that we're going to be hosting um, today. Um, I'm sure as we were getting into the new year, we were all thinking, is it going to happen? Isn't it going to happen? Is it going to happen? Isn't it going to happen? And it's happened. So, so the Taxation Laws Amendment Act has come into force, in effect. Um, and I'm pleased to introduce to you today two speakers, um, Michael Davidius, who heads up actuarial at Liberty Corporate Benefits, um, uh, who's also a member of the Retirement Matters Committee, um, to come and give us an overview of uh, the Taxation Laws Amendment Act and the implications for us actuaries and the funds that we are advising of this particular act. And we're very pleased to also have with us today Dr. David McCarthy uh, of National Treasury, who's the Retirement Policy Specialist at uh, National Treasury. He's somebody that um, I'm sure you all know. Um, he's spoken at uh, previous uh, conferences. Um, I don't think he needs much of an introduction. Uh, suffice to say that uh, David is uh, an expert in the area. He's not a tax specialist. He's not here to give advice or opinion on, on, on the act, but certainly um, at the end of, of, of Michael's uh, presentation, I think we'll give some perspective in terms of um, this act where it sits in the greater scheme of things, you know, the issues with regards to retirement reform and you know, the perspective from that, from that point of view, as well as any uh, answer to any specific questions you might have in terms of the application of, of, of this particular act. Uh, so without further ado, I'd like to call on Michael to come and present. Thank you very much. Oh, sorry, incidentally, um, there will be questions um, at the end of the session. There is a roaming mic. Um, this session is being recorded, um, so be kind in terms of what you um, decide to put through the mic. Um, it's going to be on record, um, but uh, you need to speak through the mic if you have any questions that you would like to, to uh, ask. Right, good afternoon, folks. Hi. Before we, um, before we kick off, I, I was doing some thinking about this, this presentation. And as anybody who's done a, a presentation skills course would know, it's important to, to actually anticipate who your audience is, to understand them, to try and predict who they are and what they might say, what they expect. So, so part of prepping this, this, this show, I guess, or this slideshow, I need to try and anticipate you guys. Um, and to help do that, I came up with a bit of a, a predictability test. And I need Costa to step up and, and do some work here. Um, so I want to ask you a couple questions, random questions, and then let's see if I was able to, to get it right and hence have the right type of presentation for you guys. So what I need is I need three random numbers between one and nine. So anybody just call out a number. Okay, seven's one. Let's have another one. Two. One more. Four. Okay, so... We've got a couple of random numbers here. We're going to do a couple of random steps to these numbers. So let's write those numbers in reverse. Underneath, just in reverse. In reverse. So 427. No. <laughs> 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 Slightly more challenging. Let's, <laughs> let's subtract the, the bottom number from the top number. So, well... You probably should work from. <laughs> well, you don't, you don't usually subtract like that. <laughs> I got a son in what? In, in, in grade seven. Four minus seven, 14 minus seven. 
14 minus 7 is 7. <laughs> Pay the one back. 12 minus 3. <laughs> and, okay, does Costa have it right? <laughs> okay. Okay, let's just write this backwards again. Maybe we can undo some of that. So 7, 9, 2. And just to make it really complicated, let's do the last random thing and let's just add these two numbers together. What do we come up with? One oh eight nine. So the, the real question is, was I able to predict this given the audience I'm talking to and hence put my presentation at the right level because I now understand you a lot better? And I think the good news is that you guys are very predictable. So the presentation will be just perfect. I guess before we begin, let's just say up front that none of us are real tax experts and really what constitutes or what's following is going to give really our best look, our understanding, I guess, of the recent tax changes, how they affect members, retirement funds, and the employers. I think there's a vast scope for specialists in this area to come forward um, and help out um, a lot of funds and members and employers as they tackle um, quite a lot of changes coming through. But let's dig in. Legislation that's relevant, what is, what is it that we're looking at? The tax law of 2014, what we're really talking about is a calculation of fringe benefit values um, as it relates to retirement funds. Labor, if anybody's been listening to the radio for the past week, you'll have heard Kasatu frequently talking about the postponement or wanting to postpone the implementation date, um, specifically as it relates to the annuitization. But 1 March 2016 is the date coming forward. Other relevant facts, we have the regulations on the determination of what's called a fund member category. We'll talk a bit more about that shortly. We also have regulations on information that's to be contained in what's called a contribution certificate. And again, we'll talk about more about that shortly. In terms of other legislation that's important, Section 11K of Income Tax Act, um, that deals with the allowable retirement fund deductions. I'll talk shortly about more what that includes. Um, there was a very helpful memorandum issued by Treasury, which explained some of the stuff in quite great or simple terms. Certainly worth reading um, for those who want to get more detail on it. But in terms of Section 11K, what we have here um, are effectively what's changed and what we're looking at going forward. Firstly, we have deductible, the, um, the limits, well, subject to the lesser of 27.5%. Um, of the maximum of remuneration and taxable income. That's an important change. This is limited to an annual total amount of 350000 per annum. Uh, we also have the harmonization of the tax treatment of pension provident and RA funds. A uh, big, big step forward in that direction. Member contributions to provident funds are now tax deductible. Another big change. Whether or not tax deductible, well, whatever is not tax deductible can be carried forward or will be free at retirement. Um, we can talk a bit more about what that might mean towards the end or even with some questions. The effective date of all of this, 1 March 2016, practically a month away. Just in terms of, of setting the scene, paragraph 12D also talks about the value of employer contributions 
to a retirement fund is a fringe benefit for the purpose of calculating taxable income. And we'll look at how we do that shortly. Also, the value is calculated as per regulations, some specific guidelines given on how we ought to do that. And again, effective date, 1 March 2016. The majority of, or I guess the main focus of the presentation today will be on DB funds and how they actually impact, um, or specifically the calculations. But looking at the DC funds initially, DC funds without any element of self-insurance, the actual contributions paid become the, the fringe benefit value. Um, this is net of any disability income or other unapproved risk benefits, as these are already treated as a fringe benefit in terms of Section 12C, and importantly, from a valuator perspective, no contribution certificate is required for any DC fund. The contribution certificate applies only to the, a DB fund or a DC fund that has self-insurance. For both those funds or those type of funds, there's a formula given for the fringe benefit value. That's A times B minus C. So as I continue, just note questions. If you can't hold on to them until the end of the session, um, there might be a number of sort of clarifying slides that come forward shortly. Any other questions which come up, um, we can hold over to the end when perhaps David is around and we can dig into those in a bit more detail. Yeah, fringe benefit value for DB funds, A times B minus C, where A is the cost calculated by the fund, and I'll run you into how we calculate that. There are effectively four components making up the, the, the A factor. B is the retirement funding employment income of the employee and C being the sum of the employee contributions to the fund. So that's the important formula we need to understand. Now, in terms of understanding the factor A component, there are effectively four items which make up that component. The first one being the defined benefit component factor. Again, not getting too technical, but the formula for that is A times B plus C times D, where A is your annuity accrual rate in your fund, um, in most cases, that might be a 2% or a 2.5% or 1 50th, um, so your annuity accrual rate. Factor B is a set of factors provided by the regulations um, that you multiply by A. Um, you could probably think of them as annuity rates of some form or some other. The second component is C times D, C being your lump sum accrual rate, and D as well, a fixed factor of 0.8. When you combine those numbers, you end up with your defined benefit component factor. Your second item that makes up that first A of the first formula is a risk benefit component factor. Again, A times B, A being a 0.5%. Um, you could probably think of that roughly as a mortality rate of some form. B being the capital value of average death in service benefits. Now, again, importantly note, it's the average death in benefit service, um, benefits. It includes any refund of reserve value or accumulated cons, um, but not a fund credit if you're looking at a DC fund. So for instance, if you're looking at a, a DB fund, and most DB funds would do a return of, of reserve value, um, it would be the average reserve value, straight, simple arithmetic average um, of the members that make up a contribution category. It does exclude any fully insured risk benefits, those would be valued in the DC component factor, which comes up next. So the third component being a DC con component factor, the contribution component factor. Here we're not referring to a pure, a pure DC fund. Um, as we saw, saw earlier, those don't need a contribution certificate. 
So any DC rates specified in the DB fund rules get applicable to this section. Um, and also any fully insured risk benefits gets added under this section, under the DC contribution component factor. And the fourth and final factor that makes up the first one, makes up the A, is the underpinned component factor. Again, the formula A plus B times C. A would be the greater of your DC and your DB factors above, um, B being a point 0.1, and C being the lesser of those two numbers. So really what we see is you add those four factors together, and that makes up that first A component, which then gets multiplied by the salary rate, um, the fund salary, and then gets the member's contribution rate gets subtracted. That is your fringe benefit value for the employer. There's a couple of general comments that we can talk about as we, as we look at that formula. Firstly, it's only applicable to members who are in service. It does not apply anyway to pensioners. Um, the employer's fringe benefit value is independent of what is being paid to the fund. So you will note, certainly those who've done some, some sample calculations already, that formula produces a rate which is different, or usually different, to the contribution rate determined in the last statutory valuation or funding check. So surpluses and deficits do not affect the fringe benefit value. Um, however, in the contribution certificate that is produced, it is required that we do indicate what the employer is actually paying towards the retirement fund in terms of contributions. In terms of, of the, the formula, what National Treasury have said, um, and certainly when you look at the formula from a logical perspective, what you're trying to see, what you can see, is that the formula is approximating the increase in value of benefits that result from an additional year of service. Um, if you look at the logic of each of those formulae, that what, that's what comes out from, from that calculation. In many ways, it's a one-size-fits-all. So you do find a number of anomalies between members, especially young and old, or, or short service and long service. Um, and also with the averaging involved, where, for instance, you might get split accruals or death benefits, um, and where you apply those averages, you will find, again, you come up with anomalies between members who might have many times salary for a, a death benefit for the worst of those who have a lot less. So in terms of the actual contribution certificates, well, let's unpack some of this in a bit more detail. The contribution certificate, which needs to be produced um, by the end of January each year, so for those who take note, that's by tomorrow, I um, hope most of you have done some of the work already. But really, a separate contribution certificate needs to be provided by the fund for each fund member category. And I'll define what that is shortly. But the content of these contribution certificates are defined in the regulation. What's not defined, is, however, is the format. So there's some scope to, to design your own format, but the content must include what's specified in your regulations. First one is due end of the month. Uh, which is Sunday, so effectively we're looking at tomorrow close of business. Um, there is some uncertainty around how frequently these certificates need to be produced. The current paragraph 412D, um, paragraph 4, talks about the board must not provide a contribution certificate in respect of any year of assessment in respect of which those benefits remain unaltered subsequent to the issue of that contribution certificate. That can imply as long as the benefits don't change, you never issue a new one, or alternatively, in terms of some explanatory, we could look at maybe reviewing it every triennially with the statutory valuation. Possibly an option to look at. 
I'd imagine too that maybe some of the factors also would update occasionally depending on the market outlook, which might precipitate a review of, of those factors from time to time. In terms of fund member categories, fringe benefits values are calculated across what's called fund member categories. These are effectively groups of, of members um, that meet the following conditions, and both of them need to be met in order to define a separate fund member category. The benefits for that group of members must be determined by the same set of rules and the same contributions paid or payable by that group of members. If you have a group that meets both those criteria, that would form one fund member category. Any members who form or have a different set or meet one of those only will form a separate fund member category. For instance, you might have funds which have a split accrual, maybe 2% for the first 10 years and 25 or 3% for thereafter. That wouldn't constitute a two separate fund member categories. It would be one fund member category and you'd actually average that accrual rate over the, the group of members. So in practice, what we can sort of deduce from this type of thinking is that most funds would have one fund member category. Um, there wouldn't be many funds with a whole host of them. And things like, for instance, you might find different retirement ages or funds that might have an executive um, group that has a different accrual rate to a, a staff group. Those would probably lead to different fund member, cat fund member categories. But on the whole, um, we'd probably find most funds sitting with, with one. In terms of the defined benefit component factor, we spoke about this, different accrual rates. Um, we spoke about the 2% or 2.5% for execs. That might lead to different fund member categories. Really, the rules need to be looked at quite carefully when you're looking at this type of definition. Um, things like different retirement ages, for instance, also. How they are worded in the rules, whether they specifically define two groups of people, one with a retirement age later than the other, that might, again, lead to a different category. Whereas if they're not defined like that, you could conceivably look at one fund member category, even with different retirement ages. Split accrual, split accrual, again, just remember we spoke earlier, one fund member category, you would use a simple average um, for this calculation where you would look at the increase in annuity benefits over the year of assessment um, and simply average the two rates. Um, again, keeping it fairly simple. Cannot use average over potential future years to retirement. Again, that's not in terms of how the, word, the regulations have been, have been defined to date. Bonus service is another interesting item to look at. Um, nowhere in the formula, if you would have noticed, is there an allowance for service to come in. I know there are a number of funds, my staff fund for instance, where you do get a bonus service if you achieve a certain length of service. For instance, if you go past 20 years, you might get an extra 5% service. That 5% needs to be brought in to the formula. So there you might look at the actual um, service of members. If they're all longer than 20 years, then you take your accrual rate and merely up it by a factor of 5%. Um, and that's, again, how you might apply it. Um, and if you've got members on both sides of that, of that sort of point, you would take an average and simply apply that to your overall fund category. So again, quite a lot of information, quite a lot of ways in which we can think about this. Um, and maybe, again, some certainty is is not there, but we need to look and see how we can best understand what we're seeing presented in the regulations. In terms of the risk-benefit component factor, um, many of you might note the 0.5% used is quite high, and certainly high for most funds. 
Treasury has confirmed that this does include allowance for disability benefits, and that might put it into a bit more perspective. Um, if you have funds that are fully insured, then you use the actual premium, and that falls into the defined contribution component factor. There are a few DB funds that fully insure your risk benefits unless those risk benefits are defined in terms of a lump sum. So you might, for instance, and this is an example used here, have a spouse or children's pension payable on death. Um, and again, there will be a number of ways in which you can calculate that. The responsibility is to the evaluator to estimate the capital value of that um, spouse or orphan's pension. Um, there are no factors prescribed in that. So what we would suggest is that you use the economic or demographic assumptions from the last statutory evaluation to avoid any queries. Um, and that's, again, how we would look at it. But again, remember, once you've calculated that, you need to average it. So again, it becomes quite, quite average, quite sort of hitting a, a dart in the night, um, so to speak, way of estimating things. Some other factors is to be aware of under the risk benefit component factor. Um, again, you would include the actuarial reserve value under that component, um, if or cons if paid on death. That could be quite large for closed DB funds, especially where there are members with long service. Um, just to be aware of that, Treasury have confirmed that the DB component factor allows for the same QX. Hence, we must include the death benefit in this risk benefit component factor. Um, just important to note that. In terms of the our understanding as it relates to, to how we would separate this out, your actual premium for any fully insured portion would fall into your DT component, whereas your half a percent times possibly your spouse's um, benefit or the ARV or accumulated comms, that would fall into your risk component factor. Um, and that's how you'd add the two together as it makes up that formula. DT funds with self-insurance, um, that can produce a particular or peculiar result. Your fringe benefit rate is unlikely to be equal to your DC rate specified in the rules because that 0.5 factor is likely to be quite different or not equal to the amount set aside in the fund. So again, what you might see being contributed in the fund is going to be different to what you see being specified under the fringe benefit calculation as it relates to, to the, the tax calculation. In terms of data, again, it's recommended that we use a last statutory evaluation or newer data. So in most cases, data within the last two or three years um, or newer if available. And that kind of makes up the end of the defined benefit factor and risk factor. Other issues that have kind of popped in, and this is really where we, we're going to leave it and ask for questions or get David to come and chat a bit. There is a lot of talk about the RAND limits that are out there and the fact that the, the 350 limit is probably what will be hit by most people before the 27.5%. Um, and the question is often asked, is, does it make sense to contribute to a DC fund in excess of this 350 limit? I think there's a lot of work needed still um, to understand what would be the best way to make use of the tax laws in terms of efficiency of contributions. Um, and are there other vehicles which might be more suitable to, to store or to hold contributions in excess of this limit? Um, I know there are a number of, of products out there which do provide some sort of way to make more efficient use of tax than possibly going into the, the tax, above the tax limit here. But again, I think there's a lot of scope for um, investigation and research to come through in that regard. 
And likewise, soft factors including contractual savings, access to savings, protection from creditors, provisions of Section 37C, all these factors need to be taken into account as we, as we look at um, how we might make best use of these regulations to find the best way in which we can save for retirement. That, in a, in a fairly brief nutshell, covers most of what um, we want to highlight as, as our understanding of the current tax laws and how they are going to be applied. I think a lot of value is probably going to be derived more from an interactive discussion around those factors and how they're going to be applied in practice. Um, but before we get on to that, maybe I think if David can come up and give us a bit of a view on how he sees it fitting in and possibly the way forward. And following that, Costa can run through a Q&A session as we take it up. Thanks. Um, well, firstly, thanks for having me. I'm be, I've been joined by Chris Axelson, who's um, Director of Personal Income Tax at the National Treasury. Um, and he's actually been uh, as involved in this as I have. So, Chris, do you mind coming in and sitting at the front in case there are any questions where I'm not able to provide an answer? That would be very helpful. Um, he's sitting right at the back because, like me, he was caught in the traffic. So we, we don't come to Santon often in, in the afternoon. Um, so, um, you know, the first point is, is a sort of a discussion about why we're doing this. Um, so, you know, the, the main reason that we're doing this is because um, we wanted to include employer contributions to retirement funds as a fringe benefit and to tax it as a fringe benefit. Um, and in order to do that, we needed to find a way to treat DB contributions um, and DC contributions as well, right? So um, we needed a way that was independent of the particular actuary who happened to be doing the valuation, or broadly, as far as we could be independent of the particular actuary. Um, so we couldn't have a situation where either individual actuaries were put under pressure um, to reduce the calculation or reduce the value of the calculation in order to reduce the tax liability of certain um, executives. And we also couldn't have a situation where if the fund changed the actuary, um, the value for tax purposes would be different under the new actuary as it was under the old actuary. So we needed something that was reasonably um, stable. And of course, nothing is perfect, as, as you might have picked up from uh, Mike's talk. The, um, there's a lot where actual judgment and data are still required. Um, but hopefully, the margin of, um, of, of differences between different valuators will be quite small. Um, we needed something that re reflected um, the actual value of the benefits in the hands of members um, rather than the cost of funding. So typically many actuaries view um, the contribution rate that they calculate for their funds as some measure of the pace of funding. Um, a measure of pace of funding is not appropriate uh, for this particular purpose. We needed something that reflected the value of the benefit in the hands of the members. Um, we needed DB funds to be broadly treated in an equivalent way um, to DC funds. And we needed something where if the fund was in deficit and the employer had to make extra contributions, um, that this didn't affect the tax liability of people who were in, happened to be members of the fund at that time, which wouldn't, of course, be fair because um, those people uh, were... Well, the, the increase in the contributions is in respect of benefits that people had received um, who'd been members of the fund for many years. And so the, the tax calculation should reflect um, some kind of prospective measure of the value of the benefits in the hand of the individual, not 
that particular contributions that the employer is making at this particular instant, whether they are smaller than the value of the benefits or larger. So, you know, um, sort of I was sort of on the car train one day and when we'd had a discussion at the Treasury and we'd realized that if we couldn't find a solution that met most of these, all or most of these criteria, um, then the whole measure um, of, um, of this particular tax provision uh, was in jeopardy. And so I thought, well, hmm, what can we do? And I thought, okay, well, this is one particular solution. And then a few months later, I was, for, an, for another purpose, I was looking up the world's oldest mortality table. Um, and, you know, we thought that this was a novel solution, and I was looking up the world's oldest mortality table. And for those of you in the know, it happens to be produced by a Roman jurist by the name of Alpian. Has anyone heard of this? The Alpian mortality table. Um, and Alpian lived apparently between 160 and 230 uh, of the common era. Um, and it turns out I was looking at this and it isn't actually a mortality table, it's a tax table. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a, a, a value, a table of factors that is uh, to be used by the Roman state for determining a 5% tax on inheritances. Um, and so effectively it's an age-related set of factors by which the annual income from annuity type inheritances and in Roman law they're called usufructs, use meaning the use of a piece of property and the fruct meaning the fruits or the rental income that doesn't exceed the life of the individual beneficiary um, is to be multiplied and then a 5% tax is to be applied by the Roman state. So it turns out that this particular approach is neither novel nor new, it's actually as almost as old as, um, as jurisprudence itself. And it's interesting to compare Alpian's factors with our factors. Um, and, you know, it makes us look quite uh, generous, I think. Um, because in, in the Roman, Roman table, I looked at it before I came here, um, and it's on the internet if you look at Alpian, uh, you'll find it. It's on Wikipedia. I think um, for 60-year-olds, I think his factor is 7. Um, and for, I can't remember our factors, but for 65-year-olds, I think our factor is 7.9, 8.5. Okay, so uh, we're not terribly different from Alpian, and uh, I mean, the, the tables are used in slightly different ways. So um, I think we've been um, quite uh, generous in that. A word about, if any of you have any questions about particular funds, a word about this. Um, we're beyond the, the stage, and I've said this in emails to various people, we're beyond the stage now where anything that either Chris or I says has any standing at all. So if you have a particular question about a particular fund, um, whatever we say is unfortunately not relevant. Um, the regulations are law, and that means that if you really want a, a determination about what you must do, uh, you need to speak to either your tax lawyer or you need to speak to SARS. Um, and whatever we say is the, is, has the same value as whatever anybody else says. So we can tell you what we think the intention of a particular provision was. Um, we can express a, a, a judgment about the extent to which it's achieved or not achieved. Um, but unfortunately, in terms of the, what you do for your certificates, um, you, you shouldn't it can't take what we say as, as constituting any form of advice or any form of recommendation or best practice or anything. I mean, in, in the, the medium term or even the short term, the RMC might consider um, developing in conjunction with SARS and possibly uh, National Treasury a, a practice note um, that would assist your members in interpreting these provisions. And where there are certain um, issues of policy, so there may, may be either uh, sloppy drafting in either the regulation or the act or um, some forms of um, uh, 
funds where there's no provision for particular benefits or anything else, then please do come and see National Treasury. So anything policy related, uh, we can help you with. Um, but that would only affect the, um, the, the, the drafting of the particular regulation or the provision in the Income Tax Act when they're amended. Um, and you know, the, we can amend the regulation fairly easily. Uh, amending the Act requires a process, and so, but we generally do that once a year anyway. Um, so with that proviso mentioned, um, the first thing I'd like to talk about is the fund member category because that is uh, the, the sort of basis of this particular provision. And, and you know, um, Mike mentioned two determinants of the fund member category. The, the, the one is more important than the other, I think. Um, the first one was that the benefit is to be determined by the same rules. And the second one is that the contribution rate for that class of members is the same. So, an, and an example was given, and I'm not sure if I understood the example on the slide correctly, but where you had two categories of employees, uh, you had um, executives and others, um, and executives had a different accrual rate from the others. Now, in that circumstance, my understanding would be that there should be one fund member category unless the executives pay, a or the employer pays a different contribution rate in respect of executive members than it does in respect of ordinary members. So remember, those two things must, must hold, right? Um, and why is it that we decided on this particular definition of fund member category? And the, and the reason is that for the purposes of this regulation, a defined benefit plan is treated rather like a very complicated uh, approved insurance policy. Okay, so it's an approved insurance policy in the sense that the contributions to the um, uh, insurance policy, uh, there's a, although it's treated as a fringe benefit, there's a deduction that's permitted in respect of that. Um, and then the benefits that are paid by the policy are taxed using some particular formula. And it has a, a DB plan has a particularly complicated set of um, benefits. Now, as we all know, there are some inherent cross-subsidies in DB plans, right? So, and they're, they're, a, uh, you know, they're a, a, a fundamental and unavoidable feature of DB plans. So just to give you some examples, they tend to subsidize women at the expense of men. They tend to subsidize executives at the expense of shop floor members. They tend to subsidize those people who have sharply increasing salaries over their lifetimes at the expense of those people who have level salaries over their lifetimes. Um, they tend to, to subsidize married people with children at the expense of single people without children. Um, and there's a whole lot more that you can mention, right? And these are because of systematic differences in the, in the economic and demographic experience of those different classes of, of, of members of these funds. Now, when someone, either an employer, agrees to compensate its employees in the form of a defined benefit pension fund, or employees agree to accept compensation in the form of a defined benefit fund, our view is that they have essentially accepted the types of cross-subsidies that occur and that are inherent in these plans. Whether they are you know, subsidies between executives and members, or men and women, and long servers and short servers, etc., by joining the plan or by offering planners compensation, those types of cross-subsidies have effectively been accepted. Right? And therefore, given that the member has accepted the cross-subsidy in term that's inherent in the rules, it's only fair to, to, to value that particular class of the fund and to deem a contribution rate, which you can think of as an insurance premium in respect of those benefits, 
and to tax individual members on the basis of that deemed value, right? Um, and all the cross-subsidies that you can mention, and there are millions of them, are if, if effectively part of the insurance policy. Just like if, you, um, if the employer were to buy a motor vehicle policy on behalf of the members, um, there would be some members who drive fast and some who drive slow and some who have fast cars and some who have slow, slow cars, right? That policy would effectively distribute, provided the employer charged employees an equal premium for that particular policy, there would be these inherent cross-subsidies and it would be fair to tax them as though those, this policy were one group motor vehicle policy. And that's effectively the point of the, of the fund member category, um, that provided the employer pays and the employee pays the same contribution rate for that class of member and the benefits are determined in the same, using the same rules, it's fair from a tax point of view to, to um, it's no less fair from the tax point of view than it is inherent in the plan's design itself, right, which members have agreed to, um, to treat those members as one particular group um, for the purposes of calculating tax. So, um, you know, the example that I'm most familiar with is the GEPF, um, where there are two fund member categories. So there, there are uh, service members and non-service members, and the service members get enhanced benefits in the form of uh, an additional, um, I think there's an additional death benefit and there's an additional accrual of service after they've passed 10 years. So that a service bonus, I guess. Um, and then, uh, and that, in respect of those members, the employer pays an extra 3% or 3.5% a year. And so therefore, the employees have effectively agreed that there are two risk pools in this fund. And they've effectively uh, eliminated the possibility of non-uniform members subsidizing uniform members. But within the uniform members, they haven't eliminated the possibility of uh, privates in the army subsidizing the um, retirement benefits of generals. Um, and that's exactly what happens in, inside the uniform section of the GEPF. So if the tax is unfair, the fund itself is much more unfair. And that's essentially the, um, the treatment that we have chosen. Um, the, other, the only other thing I want to mention, or well, there are two other things I'd like to mention. The one is um, the difference between the treatment of DB and DC uh, risk benefits. So, um, you know, you've picked up that there's, there is quite a, a, a difference, um, and really the difference is because um, with DB funds, most DB funds that we were aware of don't pay the ARV um, when members um, leave. So, for instance, the GPF does not pay a measure of the ARV when members leave. Um, it's not required to in terms of the uh, minimum individual reserve rules. Instead, there's a separate risk benefit that it pays. So what, what we did was we reduced the factors on retirement in respect of pre-retirement mortality, right? And then it required you to calculate an estimate of the cost of risk benefits separately and add that on. Whereas for the DC portion, if the, if the um, benefit, the individual fund member's reserve is returned on death, um, then that, in a sense, has already been paid for because of the tax treatment of the contributions. So effectively, we lowered the contributions in respect of the retirement portion by treating the benefit that you would get as zero if you died and then required you to add on whatever risk benefits that you pay um, in respect of a, of a DB fund separately. And if the mortality of the fund is 0.5%, um, which um, unashamedly I'll say is based on the mortality of the GEPF, um, then 
everything works out okay. If your fund has a slightly heavier mortality, um, so we have heard of, about some funds where the mortality is a lot heavier than that, um, then to the extent that the risk benefits are more generous than the actual reserve value, um, the members will benefit in the form of slightly lower tax. To the extent that they're lower than the actual reserve value, um, the members will be slightly, um, slightly punished. So it's, it's, it's really uh, swings and roundabouts. As in most tax provisions, we can't get it exactly accurate for everybody all the time. Um, we think we've done okay. We haven't done perfectly, but we've done okay um, for the simple reason that 99.9 um, had a discussion. I presented this in Cape Town earlier this week, maybe 99, and there was a discussion there about this, that maybe 99.5% of the active DB members in South Africa are members of the GEPF. So um, provided that um, we've got something reasonable, this is active members, not pensioner members, um, provided that we've got something reasonable for the GEPF, 99.5% um, of members of defined benefit pension funds in South Africa are being paid a, paying a reasonable amount of tax. And I don't feel that the factors are so inaccurate um, that the, um, the, the rest of members are, are, are seriously disadvantaged. But if they are, uh, please let us know and we can um, look and see how we can make it more accurate. Um, the second thing I'd just like to say is, is, is an apology. Um, you know, the, I know that the final regulations were only gazetted on the 7th of January, and I'd like to apologize for that, given the very uh, short notice that you had to prepare the certificates by the end of the month. Um, and, of course, we all know the reasons for that. Um, you know, we weren't sure until the very last minute whether the standing committee would actually um, pass the law. Um, and then uh, when it became clear that they were going to do that, um, the, uh, the, the, the minister was just about to approve the um, publication of the final version of the, um, the regulations when unfortunately he found out that he wasn't the minister anymore. Um, and then, um, you know, it was the first thing that the new minister uh, signed. So, um, so... No, it was the um, it was the current minister. <laughs> Not that it matters; it's the same, right? Um, so, uh, so I do wish to apologise for that. It wasn't intentional, unfortunately. Given the tremendous uproar that this uh, law seems to have caused, and and in what seems to be quite an unnecessary uh, way, um, uh, it, it this is just a casualty of it. But I do hope that all of you are. Um, were sufficiently apprised of the contents that you at least could have a first stab at your calculating your um, contribution certificates, if not the final one. So please do accept our apologies for that regard. I don't know if, Chris, you have any words. Come. Thank you, everybody. I also would like to reiterate that apology for the late regulations. I mean, I think the one thing to take away from this is we're increasing the retirement uh, deduction that you can have, the tax deduction on your contributions quite dramatically. Um, a, it's to 27.5% and B, it's on a much higher base. So now we're using taxable income instead of um, retirement funding income. So everybody should be able to contribute a lot more f to their retirement. Given that these, you know, these um, rates we've had, had, we have had some people say that they are quite high. Um, in terms of the impact on your members, it might be minimal. What they might lose would be the ability to make additional contributions to an RA fund. 
where they might not get that many deductions. Um, or, I mean, if they are, you know, at the limit, then they might not get as much reduction there. But for the majority of people, probably at the moment, and we've seen from our data, that not everybody gets to that full limit. So a lot of your members probably won't be impacted by this. Um, I mean, other than that, in terms of the legislation, you know, we are very well aware that there are some problems with the legislation. Uh, and we do appreciate emails to us to say, look, this actually doesn't make sense. Why have you done this? Um, it was a bit of a rush. We had about three different options um, still in October last year. So it, it was quite a frenetic process. Um, and we do apologize for that as well. We want to sort them all out this year. So if you do spot anything, please do let us know. Um, and we can, we can try and fix it. We've got a nice list already of things to fix. And if there are things you know now um, that don't make sense, you can ask us and we'll tell you, because we've told other stakeholders already if they have asked in terms of which way we were going to go with any questions they have on the legislation. Thank you, otherwise. Thanks very much, Michael, David, Chris, for that. Um, we're going to open the floor up for some questions. I'm sure there are many. Um, so there is a mic at the back, and if there are any questions that uh, we, can, we can post to these three gents uh, up front, I expect that after to have a question. Uh, thanks, Gusta. <clears throat> Thank you to Dave and Chris and Mike. So three questions. Firstly, Dave, the elephant in the room, the unions. Is this legislation going to go ahead, or is it going to... Certainly, from my impression, it appears that in the middle of February, a minister's going to say, well, we're going to postpone it a year or two. Your thoughts? Ah, I guess. Thank you. And the second one is, you referred to the example of the executives and the ordinary members in the, the slide, and said, if I understand you correctly, you said you view them as one member category, which is certainly not the way we've issued our certificates because the, the definition of fund member category says fund member category is a group of members who receive the same value of benefits and the same contributions. It says if either condition doesn't hold, there's more than one fund category. And to me, an executive gets a benefit in terms of Rule 4.1, an ordinary member gets a benefit in terms of Rule 4.2. So we have separate categories for executives and other groups. I think that, that's quite quite important because that affects quite a few of the senior people. And then I had a third question, which uh, the other point is you want to annuitize provident fund income from one March, but yet the old age pension has got a means test. So somebody who's in a provident fund who has to buy a pension with part of the benefit after one March, yet the old age pension gets reduced. That, that can't be fair. So that's one of the very big shortcomings of the legislation, which I think should be addressed. Thank you, Costa. And the first one was on the, oh, whether the legislation is actually going to go ahead. Yes, it is. I mean, the legislation is going ahead. Um, the president, you know, he can't withdraw um, legislation that has been passed by parliament. He can send it back for constitutional reasons, 
Um, but he can't suddenly say it's not going to apply. Uh, and SARS are doing everything they can to get ready. Uh, we are moving forward as if it is going ahead. Um, even if the 2015 bill was repealed, this is still in the 2013 bill. So you'd have to repeal the 2015 bill and the 2013, sorry, 2015 Act and the 2013 Act. So no, our view is we are going ahead. Um, in terms of the main contentious issue, which is the annuitization of provident funds and members' funds, we've got quite generous vested rights, we believe, for that. So it only applies to contributions after 1 March. Um, you know, we think those provident fund members will only be impacted within, say, five years. Um, if they are, we have committed to Parliament that we will review the legislation and the impact within two years. So I think by the middle of June 2018, we need to go back to Parliament. Um, hopefully by then we've discussed further with the unions, we've discussed further with everybody. Um, and if there were going to be amendments, it would be then. It wouldn't be now. We're not, we wouldn't pull the legislation. That does come to your third question on the old age grant. Um, we committed in the, in the 2013 budget review to seriously investigating getting rid of the means test uh, for the old age grant. Uh, given fiscal constraints, we didn't do that. Um, and we have said publicly that when the fiscal position is better, we will you know, look towards doing that as soon as we can. Given the impact on the Provident Fund members would only be within, say, five years, in effect, we've got a five-year timeline to con seriously consider getting rid of that means test um, to apply to everybody. And then, you know, that uh, unintended consequence won't be there. What is the second question again? So, again, I mean, we can't, I mean, David mentioned earlier, unfortunately, in terms of interpretations and rulings, SARS would have to give you the final answer on that. So we'd have to check the legislation again. But, for example, you look at the GPF, I mean, it's, 55th accrual for people with less than 10 years of service, uh, 40th accrual for people with more. Um, in our view is it's this, yeah, sorry. And uh, our view is that that's the same group of people who can follow the same career path and you know get the same accrual, so it's average across everybody. Um, you know, in terms of other types of executive funds, I'm, I'd be wary to make a pronouncement on what this. Uh, rulings are, I would suggest that we you either chat to uh, SARS or tax advisor on that, but probably one. Really, you had a question? I think the most important question is what's your email address? <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm serious. The, the first question on the, on the DC component, normal DC funds, you don't need the certificate. So admin fees included in your contributions. But if you need to do a certificate, you can exclude the admin fees. It's not in the regulation of a read and act. It says it refers to retirement benefits, so you can exclude your admin fee. Then the other one is whether you need to change your certificate if the benefits don't change. The problem with the, your composition of your membership can change. So your average multiple of salaries can change even if your benefits remain the same. So I think you should change it whenever the, um, like every valuation or whatever. Then the other question about the taxable contributions in a fund, it was not mentioned there because that is now subject to estate duty. 
And the problem is who's going to keep track of that part of your benefit? Because SARS will keep track of your taxable benefits, not the administrator anymore. And then I've got issues with contributions, due date versus date of receipt. Like say, January contribution only coming in in April. That's going to the new pool or the old pool. And that's got impl implications for any outstanding contributions from the past. And the same is true for transfers from pension to provenant fund, or even is it based on effective date of the transfer, or the approval date, or the date of receipt of the assets? And the question is, is there a possibility that they're going to change that, backdate it, because that's got implications for the administrator to change the system and change again. And then there's uh, small issues like a divorce order in future, where do you pay it from? From prorata or only from one pool or whatever? Thank you. Thanks, Vili. That's a whole lot of questions. <laughs> Is it on? So the, the first question, um, we are, we are, we've been made aware of this issue. Um, I think it, it looks to me like it's something that we might need to think about fixing. Um, so um, if you wouldn't mind sending an email, um, that would be very useful. I'll give you my email address at the end. Um, or you can send it to Chris. That might be more um, valuable. Um, the, the issue on the, the contributions, the way the law is written at the moment, it's, it's the, the date the contributions are actually received. It's, it's not the date. As I understand it, it's not the date on which, um, for which the contributions were intended. Um, and so if, if you're worried about getting the uh, correct tax treatment for February's contributions, um, and there's a, a, a few days delay between the payment of the contributions and the receipt of the contributions, it might be a good idea to pay them a few days early. Um, you know, the, the question, the more important question is about arrear contributions where employers for whatever reason, um, or, or funds for whatever reason, haven't received contributions that are due. And again, in, in, in that respect, it, it might be worth um, considering making an alteration um, to, the, to the law. But unfortunately, that's not something that we're going to be able to do before the um, 1st of March. So, um, but it is, it's something that definitely is worth considering. Um, I don't know what the right answer to that question is, but these are all very valuable um, things that we we do need to think about. Um, yeah, so that's there are quite a few. I mean, in terms of the arrear contributions, so you know, by is it the Pension Funds Act? You've got say till the seventh of March to contribute for February contributions. Now, if you contribute on the sixth, you know, as the law currently stands, that doesn't count. Does that make sense? Um, you know, so we, there are quite a few of these sort of issues um, which we want to make a statement on. I can tell you now that we are seriously considering changing the legislation to apply retrospectively to allow those contributions that were paid in the following month but before February to be included in the vested right portion. Um, the way we would do that is we would try and make an announcement in budget. So on, I think it's the 24th of Feb this year, 
Um, the minister will make his budget speech. In the back, there's an annexure C where we have a uh, technical tax amendments. Um, we've got a paragraph there where we will say um, these type of things. We will look to change the legislation to uh, allow arrear contributions to, um, and then it comes to your second one on divorce orders. So um, divorce orders, what do you do about vested rights at the moment? Um, you know, if you will your spouse get the whole vested right? Will you keep the whole vested right? At the moment, we didn't want to make it a proportional withdrawal, but for divorce orders, we think it's fairer to do that. So, you know, we would want to have a proportional split of the vested right in the case of divorce orders, and there might be some other Section 37D, I think, uh, scenarios where it might be reasonable, and we're still chatting with SARS about that as well. Um, so those are the type of technical things that we will make that statement in the paragraph and we will want to apply uh, retrospectively. The other thing is there's an issue in the transfers to pension funds under paragraph C of the definition of pension fund, uh, which were inadvertently excluded. You know, those will definitely include those. So, I mean, the policy rationale is to have vested rights for people who were going to get a lump sum. We're not just because we might have made a mistake in the legislation doesn't mean we're not going to allow that going forward. So I hope that gives you peace at least. Uh, sorry, the question on estate duty. Were you saying uh, contributions that weren't deductible but are now part of the estate? Because we made that amendment last year. I don't, I don't quite see what the question is though. Yes, yeah, so we made that change last year. Yeah, so SARS will have that information. So we made the change last year to sort of, but we've got the we've got the non-deductible contributions. So we've got a running limit of the non. Oh uh, yeah. Oh, I didn't think that that was how we wrote it, but. <laughs> Um, yeah, so section 14 transfers as well. So at the moment, the the vested right, if you're over 55, you've got a vested right to being able to contribute, to continue to contribute to your provident fund. So we do think the vested right provisions are quite generous because even if you're over 55 and you stay within the same provident fund, you still don't need to annuitize anything. But if you move um, from that provident fund, you will lose the ability to make future contributions from which you don't have to purchase an annuity in the way it's currently worded. But we are seriously considering, um, and when I say seriously considering, it's not a yes. We need to get confirmation from the minister before anything we say here becomes law. So I, we can come here and say, yes, we definitely want to do this, but if the minister says no, it's a no, and you, know, you can't hold us to say the fact we want to do it. But for that, we are seriously considering including allowing forced transfers to occur where they won't lose the vested right of being able to make additional contributions. So if an employer gets taken over by another employer, but the new employer only has a pension fund and doesn't have a provident fund, you know, why should the employee who was over 55 not be allowed to continue to make contributions where he, he can, doesn't need to purchase an annuity? So those are the things that would be in the back of the budget for you.
I think that would uh, be the same as area contributions, um, but but we would need to check the yeah, but we would need to check the legislation, and we must make sure that the legislation. And you need to speak to your tax lawyer. Yeah. Because we, whatever we say, it's what's written down. Howard, you had a question, a series of questions. In a DC situation, or a DB situation, or what we might call a hybrid of DB and DC fund, if surplus has been applied to reduce an employer's commitment, is that acceptable in determining what is the contribution that is being paid? And therefore, the contribution that counts. Um, that's a good spot of a loophole there. Um, so at the moment, in the primary legislation in the Income Tax Act, it says contributions made by the employer. Um, we are going to change that to be contributions made by or on behalf of the employer because we do not want to exclude contributions that are made to the fund made to the fund on behalf of the employer by the fund because it's still a benefit from the individual um, so is that what you were trying to get at if you change that to exclude um, a contribution holiday then are you not applying your tax to past contributions? Because the surplus that has arisen in the fund is surplus that has arisen from over-contributing in a certain sense, or can be deemed to be seen as that, or so its investment performance, etc., etc., a whole bunch of things. So you would then, if you change it, as you're proposing to do, you'd be taxing past contributions. Now the tax you're introducing is for future contributions. Yeah, look, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important point. It also raises the uh, issue of the consistency of the treatment of surplus between DB funds and DC funds. So uh, this question was raised in Cape Town. Uh, someone asked the question, if you put contributions into a DC fund um, and you know the fund performs beyond expectations, um, then the members benefit, right? If you put contributions into a DB fund and the assets uh, enjoy higher than expected returns and there's a surplus in the fund and then the the, uh, the employer uses the surplus to grant a, a, a benefit increase of some kind um, then we would tax that and there was a question raised about the consistency of those two treatments um, and it's a it's a, a an important question um, I certainly don't have a particular I don't know what the correct answer is um, and it's something that I think we need to hear from you guys on um, about what uh, the different uh, options are and then we would have to make some kind of decision about w the way to go. So I don't know what the correct answer to this problem is, either of the problems, the problem you raised or the problem I raised, um, and I think we need to think about it a bit more before we make a decision. If this surplus that I'm referring to had been distributed prior to 1st of March of 2016, and now resided in accounts of members, for example, 
then that surplus will have been disposed of and could not be taxed. If instead of having allocated surplus directly to members' accounts, the decision was taken to spread the effect over the future so that, in fact, members who stayed got the benefit and members who left did not get a bonanza that perhaps some people might have thought was unreasonable to give. Yeah. A, <laughs> it's getting very, very hoary. <laughs> Um, I'm not sure if there's, there's an, if, if we make one particular decision, there's going to be one set of winners. If we make another decision, there's going to be another set of winners. Um, you know, the, 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 the crucial area here would be a, a hybrid fund where surplus from the DB portion was being used to subsidize either employer or employee contributions into the DC portion. And I, unfortunately, I am aware of some quite large funds where that is exactly what's happening. Um, so we would have to consider um, the different alternatives and then uh, make a difficult decision. But I don't think it's going to be an easy decision one way or the other. Any more questions? I've got this Fitbit, so with every step that I take, I'm actually closer to my target, <laughs> aside my CPD points. Um, can you just confirm what would be, in a, in a DB Provident Fund, what would constitute the, the vested rights? Would it be in respect of the service, or would it, yeah, because it can't be in terms of the contributions. I'm coming. And I've never heard of a DB Provident Fund before. Um, now, unfortunately, it would have to be how the law itself was drafted. Um, and I have, I'm under the, under, under the impression, I don't know, Chris, whether I'm correct or not, that the law refers to contributions that are made before a certain date uh, comprising the vested rights. Um, so that, unfortunately, is what would be. Um, it would be the contributions that were made before a certain date um, and the fund return on those contributions. Now, whether that has any meaning in the context of, of the fund that you're referring to, um, I, I, I can't answer. Um, but it might be useful if you send us an email um, because uh, we weren't aware of any uh, um, DB Provident Funds. Do you guys want to <laughs> Hi, my name is Gerda. Um, I'm um, consulting actually to a number of DC funds with self-insurance. Um, now the way the law is currently written, the DC component will be calculated as um, the value of the, con uh, the contributions less the portion that's currently allocated to the risk reserve. And then if I calculate the DC risk component, it will give you a different rate. That gives us a conundrum. So I just want to get your opinion on that. Thank you.
This question also came up in Cape Town. Um, it raises, an, as you point out, I think it raises a number of quite tricky issues. Um, one of them is that, and I don't think we really anticipated this, is that the uh, contribution certificate is going to show a different value for tax purposes um, than the amount that's paid into the fund. And, you know, the gentleman in Cape Town who asked this question was very concerned about the uh, perception on the part of people who saw on their pay slips that the particular contribution was going in and then found that it, uh, the money had gone missing or something had happened, right? And he was, um, he was kind of concerned about this. Um, the simple answer that I gave to the person in Cape Town was that your fund is actually a DB fund uh, with a DC retirement benefit. Um, the, the reason I say that is because um, because you're self-insuring the risk benefits, there's the possibility of intergenerational uh, subsidies or cross-subsidies or risk-sharing or diversification between different generations of your fund. Um, your fund, your risk reserve can run a deficit um, and future members of the fund are going to be required, they're going to benefit from any surplus, they're going to be required to make up any deficit. And in that sense, your fund is actually a DB fund, or at least that portion of it is a DB fund. And as the gentleman pointed out, any fund with a, even a, a DB component, no matter how small it is, um, is a DB fund in terms of our law. Um, and unfortunately, that's what, that's what happens. Um, so, and it's still the same even if the rules of the fund specify that the contribution cannot exceed X percent per year. In that case, it is unfortunately still a DB fund um, and it needs to be treated as a DB fund in terms of the law. So, um, and you know, some funds will gain because the 0.5% might be lower than the cost of risk benefits. Other funds might lose because the 0.5% is higher than the cost of risk benefits. Um, you know, the gentleman in Cape Town was suggesting that he would change the deduction to equal 0.5% if you wish to do that. Um, you can. Um, unfortunately, that's what the, the decision that we had to make. Um, and, um, yeah, I don't know if you have another suggestion about how we might handle such funds, um, then I'd be glad to hear it. Um, but remember that it is actually a DB fund with a DC retirement benefit. Yeah, in my view, the contribution rates are still fixed in terms of the rules. So there will never be a requirement to the employer to contribute more to those funds. So the only thing that can happen is in practice the split between the portion that goes towards the building of the fund credit and the portion to the reserve will change. Or if that becomes um, too expensive, the benefit will change. Because from the employer's perspective, the rules stipulate fixed contribution rates. So I will change paragraph 12D to state if the contribution rates are fixed in terms of the rules, um, your fringe benefit will be that total contributions. Unfair to tax current members based on benefit augmentations or reductions that will be received by future members. That's the whole point. So if, if in your fund there's a catastrophe, and I use this example in Cape Town, and the factory for this fund burns down, and unfortunately members are maimed or killed, um, then your fund will have a huge deficit and that will have to be made up by future generations of, of, of workers or the, or the employer of your particular fund. And if we follow your suggestion, we will tax current members of the fund for the, either the benefits or the costs that will be borne by future members of the fund. And that is something that we, we felt as a policy decision wasn't fair. And so therefore we decided to change um, the, the, the way that those, the 
value of the fringe benefit for tax purposes was calculated in a way that was independent of the pace of funding. Whether such funding comes from the employer or the employee is not relevant. Um, the question is, does the tax relate to the benefits received by that particular group or cohort of workers or not? Right? Yeah, point taken, but some funds also take out catastrophe insurance, so just leave it there. It doesn't change, the, whether they take out catastrophe insurance or not, doesn't change the fundamental point. And the fundamental point is that your fund is a DB fund, right? And that therefore we cannot fairly tax current workers for benefits that will be, or future workers for benefits that were received by current workers, or current workers for benefits that were received by future workers. And that was a policy decision that we took. And for that reason, um, it is fairer in our view that we, we tax current workers in respect of benefits that they themselves receive. Question from Garth. So just a question regarding if, if so, so you're saying if you have a defined contribution fund or, or a fund with defined contributions that actually has a defined benefit promise underlying, you're saying that's a defined benefit fund. I don't understand then why in the various components that make up your, your contribution factor would you then have an underpin component because you would effectively you're saying you choose the DB or DC so you do the DC, the DB component, you do that calculation, it does come out higher than the defined contribution and I understand that that's what you want to be taxed on. But then you also have the underpin component which takes the greater of the DBDC and adds 10% and then adds additional 10% of the smaller. I'm just not sure how that all, all ties in. Um, the, the underpin component is an estimate of the, and a very rough estimate, as you will have picked up, of the option value of the of the of the underpin. So it just says that the um, we don't know which one is going to be greater in the end, um, and but you know we're just approximating the. We feel that the guarantee that that the underpin is providing has some value to members, and we just used a very rough way, as you can see, of calculating what that value might be. It's certain that the value is not zero. It has some value, and it's also certain that the value is larger the closer those two uh, components are together in value. So if you have one component, the DC component is very, very small, and the DB component is very, very large, then the value of the guarantee provided by the DC component is presumably small, uh, and vice versa. So that was the thinking behind the underpin component. Um, we were made aware in the consultation process of various funds that had underpins and so we simply decided to, um, well we felt that we had to include some um, estimate. Um, it, we're not claiming that it's the most accurate estimate in the world. So just a follow up, the, f the formula looks like it works out for the underpin component a full contribution. So let's say you were 17 and 10, so it says take 17 as the greater plus 10% of the 10, so you call it 18. But it says, but the but the overall formula says you aggregate all of these, so you can't expect to be aggregating the 17 plus the, the underpin component. The underpin component doesn't just look like an extra over and above, it looks like the whole amount on its own. So you almost, you choose, are you DB or are you underpin? In, in the various subparagraphs, you, you are asked to exclude um, any benef the factor in respect of any benefit component that's used to calculate the value of an underpin. Um, so, so in the DC component, it says you can you must add all the DC components up, but you must exclude any benefit, any component factor that's used in the calculation of an underpin. And in the DB, it says you must add them all up, but you must exclude anything that's used in the underpin, and then those fall into the underpin. So there are, I don't think there's double counting. At least I hope there isn't. Um, uh, there certainly isn't intended to be. Um, but just that's our reading of it, and perhaps um, I've made a mistake, which. Uh, 
I haven't made a mistake. So that's our reading of it. Hi. Um, question about retirement annuities and causal event charges. If, um, as a member of an RA or as a RA policyholder, it's no longer um, tax viable for you to make contributions to an RA because they're no longer going to be tax deductible because you've hit your cap or you're going to have to reduce the amount of um, contribution you're making to an RA because you're, you're hitting your cap. Um, are the insurance companies going to be regulated about the extent of causal event charges they can apply because members are effectively being forced to change their tax planning year as a result of legislative change? Or will the members just have to take um, the normal causal event charges hit and we'll have SOI2 down the line? I, I would expect, and perhaps I'm completely uh, misguided, um, but I would expect that the number of people who fall into this category might be quite small. Um, I, I, if not, um, and the reason I say that is because the RA contributions are limited to 7.5% of non-retirement funding income. And now we have increased the, your ability to contribute to RAs and occupational funds to 27.5% of total remuneration with a 350,000 rand cap. So there's a significant increase in the, for, for almost everybody in the allowable contributions to retirement annuities. Um, so my guess would be, and it's just a guess, that um, there might be relatively few people who fall into such a category. Um, if there are large numbers of people who fall into such a category, um, then we would ask you please to approach us, um, and it's something that we could consider. I don't know what the uh, the the outcome will be. I think under current law, if I'm and again I'm not a tax lawyer, so um, my my reading would be that under current law, if you did elect to change your contributions um, to such an RA policy in respect of changes to tax law, unfortunately the causal event charges would apply. Um, but I'm not I'm not a tax lawyer, so and I don't know if Chris has any view on that. No, so. If there are large numbers of people for whom this is an issue, then please do approach us. Um, if, but I would expect, given the massive increase in the allowable contributions to RAs for tax purposes for virtually everybody, um, this might be a relatively specialized problem. Um, I just have a question, please, with regards to the risk-benefit component in the self-insured DC funds. So a lot of our funds that we've done calcs for actually have a sliding scale of contributions but they all have the same risk-benefit at the end of the day. So that effectively means with that fund member category that you do have different categories, right? Um, I just want to know if my understanding is correct because unfortunately at the higher bands, because it's a salary sacrifice basis, you do find that there are a few number of members there. So from year to year, that tax scale can actually change quite a bit based on membership. So a member with the same contribution rate and same benefit from year to year could have a very different tax answer because of membership? I, 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 given such a, uh, a very brief description of the rules, um, you know, my answer to this question is at best tentative. Um, and you know, again, I would urge you to uh, talk to your tax lawyer. Um, my understanding, and Chris just confirmed this, would be that if you have a sliding scale of contributions, um, you would need to have different fund member categories and a different certificate for each of those categories. It, if that means a different certificate for every member, um, that may well mean a different certificate for every member. 
depending on how the law is drafted. Um, it might be useful, this isn't something we were aware of, it might be useful if you come and talk to us at the end or send us an email um, so that we're aware of, at least aware of the problem um, and then we can think about what the right, right solution might be. Guys, conscious of time, um, it's, it's, it's 6 o'clock. I've, I've reached my Fitbit uh, target, um, 12,500 steps. I'm sure these gentlemen in front of, uh, of you all today are quite tired with um, having spent an hour and a half sort of debating these issues with you. This is obviously very different legislation. It's very complex legislation, and there are clearly very many issues that haven't as yet been addressed. Um, certainly my take from it is that you're encouraged to engage directly with National Treasury um, in terms of raising specific issues with them to the extent that you're looking for advice or opinion uh, on a particular matter you're very encouraged to seek the advice of a, of a tax lawyer or a tax expert. Um, Treasury, I don't think, are in a position to offer opinion on a particular uh, matter. Um, but there clearly are many issues that have not been fully understood or fully resolved, and I'm sure that in the months to follow, um, quite a lot of uncertainty is going to flow. Um, the important thing is that there is ongoing communication, continued debate, and I think Treasury certainly has made it very clear to, to, to you all um, that they have this open channel of communication for you to deal with them directly. Of course, to the extent that you'd like to send queries to the Retirement Matters Committee for them to, on behalf of you and everybody else, um, submit uh, you know, those sort of queries to, to National Treasury, we'd, we'd obviously welcome that. Um, uh, as you know, at the end of these sort of sessionals, we typically have um, drinks and um, snacks outside. Uh, I thank Old Mutual for, for the benefit of uh, not only their premises, but also their hospitality. I also would like to extend my personal thanks uh, on behalf of the Retirement Matters Committee to, to Mike, to David, to Chris for um, availing themselves this afternoon and, and presenting on this very difficult subject. Um, and to you all for your attendance. It's a really well-attended sessional. Um, you know, it's, what's great about these sort of sessionals is, is the continued and interactive sessions that we are able to have amongst each other and the networking opportunities that they afford us all. So on behalf of us all here, thanks very much for your attendance. Uh, cheers.